0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Comic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Woke, host of the channel, and today I'll be talking to Dr. Allison Halsall about her new book, Growing Up Graphic, The Comics of Children in Crisis, published by Ohio State University Press in 2023. Dr. Allison Halsall is an associate professor at York University in Toronto, Canada, and the coordinator of the Children, Childhood, and Youth Program, part of the Department of Humanities. Her work is interdisciplinary and transgeneric. In addition to children's literature, she specializes in Victorian and modernist literatures, with a particular emphasis on visual cultures, which includes the study of paintings and illustrations, contemporary film, comics, and graphic novels. Alison Halsell and co-editor Jonathan Warren received the 2023 Will Eisner awards for best academic slash scholarly work for editing the LGBTQ plus comic studies reader critical openings and future directions. Dr. Halsell's project with this book has four stated primary objectives, and I quote, one, it explores this visual and literary medium that is heavily invested in the representation of children and youth, especially in relation to the depiction of particular experiences, i.e. social, political, cultural, racial, sexual, ableist, etc., that young people have undergone and continue to live through. These texts contest images of childhood victimization, passivity, and helplessness, presenting instead children as actors who attempt to make sense of the challenges that affect them. Two, it examines the many circuitous routes that graphic literature for young people takes in and out of discourses of nation, belonging, ableism, and identity, moving with, and oftentimes against, currents of power. Three, it participates in a crucial intersectional trend in children's publishing that looks to complicate and diversify the content and characters produced for young readers in the global north. Specifically, it highlights visual representations of a range of young people, including child soldiers, migrants, indigenous peoples in Canada, queers and young people living with impairments and or undergoing particular medical life events. In its investigation of much of its subjects, it also considers questions of age and audience. Finally, it considers the reader as a source of tension itself, the reader thus produced by the graphic text and the empirical reader who might be an adult child, etc. Ultimately, this project considers graphic narratives for children and about children, an underexplored field in itself, and one that provides surprising insight into the types of reading material that young readers gravitate towards and that complicate assumptions of readerly innocence. In this interview, Dr. Halsell talks about frameworks for analyzing comics aimed at young readers, how contemporary culture and politics can influence access to these works, and hopes for the creation of a new comics archive. All right, Dr. Alison Halsell, welcome to the show. Alison, I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey towards this topic.
1: Oh, thanks. Hi, Elizabeth. Um, thank you so much for this invitation. I'm I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to be chatting with you about uh, my latest project, which I'm very excited about. Um, I'm a, a professor here in Canada and Toronto. And uh, for years now, I've been studying visual cultures. And I came into comics and graphic novels relatively recently. Um, But uh, over the years, I've started incorporating graphic novels into my classroom, uh, because I think they offer a really unique um, and useful way to get students who are already such um, proficient visual learners an opportunity to talk about word and image and, and how word and image uh, work together to make meaning. So in terms of how I got to this topic, um, it's, uh, it's taken me a, a, about six years from start to finish uh, to work through this project. I um, in my first sabbatical six years ago, I discovered um, some beautiful indigenous comics uh, written here in Canada. And I fell in love with this one creator, David Alexander Robertson, whom I discussed in, in the book. I actually um, went to a book reading with him just last, uh, last week on Truth and Reconciliation Day, and he was reading his picture book to, uh, to kindergarteners at my kids school. And I asked the principal, I was like, I just have to sit in like, I, I just can't go home knowing that he's here. And she's like, of course, of course, come in. So it was a soup. It was a huge thrill for me. Anyway, I came to his um, comics. And I of course, read read everything he wrote. And he hasn't just worked in comics and graphic narrative form. Um, He's worked in YA literature, novels for younger readers. And uh, I I found that his material moved me profoundly and encouraged me to read widely in um, other Indigenous literature here in Canada, Indigenous comic books. That's actually a real growing trend here um, in Canada, as as I think it is in the States and, and in Europe as well. Um, and it really got me thinking about my positionality vis-a-vis comics, um and about comics written about young people's lived experiences. So, um, I began to read widely in in what would eventually become the uh, series of texts that ideas in growing up graphic. And um what I started to notice was a trend uh, about, stories of kids in crisis, kids going through very particular predicaments or challenges um, that they were both experiencing and responding to. And what was so refreshing to me about these texts um, was that they weren't positioning children or young people as victims. And that was so important to me. Obviously, some of these kids are victims of many different types of violences. Um, but what I was particularly intrigued by was how they responded to these violences with courage, with resilience, sometimes with fear, sometimes with anger. But in all instances, these young people at the heart of these crisis conics, um showed themselves to be complex, agentic figures. And that, that was so thrilling to me um, because it really moves away from that innocent child model. um, That I think, you know, when you think of like, yeah, Valentine's Day, the Cupid, you know, flying through the air, just that sort of bubbly, rotund, slightly rotund, (laughs) um, little person flying innocently in the air, which totally jars with some with all of these uh, representations that I'm seeing in these texts. So The more I read, it seemed that the more I was seeing um, these perspectives of crisis, and you know, one, these these perspectives really position children as vital, um, as active and activist even, Uh, and of course, all of these figures uh, were demanding to be heard, and that was really exciting for me. Um, because again, it just, it really reacted against or responded to this assumption of children being powerless.
0: Yeah. And if I can, uh, zoom in on two different points, I, at least I read, uh, you making at the beginning of your book, uh, that comics, and I think I'm quoting here, have frequently been dismissed as immature or uncomplicated and then parallelly uh, children being viewed as a political, asexual, and innocent of these public issues. So you identified these problems with it, but could you give us some examples of creators who are doing it right that you think are hitting the mark?
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. I wish I had an hour <laughs> to describe and list all the comics that I'm excited about. Um, I mean, there's so many. Some of them just a couple I mentioned in my book, but some of them are, are newer. Uh, CC Bell's El Defo, it's not a new text per se, written in 2014 about uh, a young girl who's hearing impaired, I think is so excellent in terms of how it renders deafness visually and narratively really, really exciting and, and moving text. Jerry Craft's New Kid um, about and in his intersectional experience at private school, I thought was very interesting, a a little newer than El Defo 2019. Mike Corrado's uh, memoir called Flamer, I just discovered this summer and loved it. Um, I loved the visuals and I loved the uh, rendering of his experiences of summer camp as, as a, as it as an emerging gay boy. Um, I really thought that was excellent. Lewis Hancock's text, Welcome to St. Hal, my trans teen misadventure, more recent 2022. Really exciting. I remember buying it at the Strand in New York City um, and just diving in right on the floor <laughs> um, because I was just so eager to to experience what that was about. He really captures that British voice, Northern British voice, which um, is dear to my heart. Uh, I just finished Jillian and Mariko Tamaki's uh, new text, Roaming uh, 2023. That one is so exciting as someone who loves New York City um, and who went to New York City as a young person. And it was like they were in my head, capturing the sort of tumultuousness of being uh, traveling with a friend at 19 or <laughs> in New York and, and being super naive and yet super worldly. Um, I thought that was a really, really excellent um, representation of all kinds of challenges that young people face. Um, Katharina Vermette's A Girl Called Echo series. That's a, another uh, Indigenous series here in Canada. My son is reading one of the issues um, in his grade eight class this year and I was I was so excited uh, that he was that our work was colliding in that way and that you know his teachers were using this to teach about the metis uh, in Manitoba and uh, you know it just goes to show what powerful um, examples these texts can be um, in terms of teaching history. So those are just some I could go on and on. Um, And I guess what I'll say is that all of the books that uh, I read for Growing Up Graphic, and I read a lot, (laughs) I have a a bibliography of primary text that's 12 pages long, um, really work to emphasize the, uh, the positionality of the young person as complex and vital. All of these texts do that. And this perspective was and still is so important for me um, as a critic. Uh, Again, it it moves us away uh, as as self reflexively as possible from thinking about children as innocent or immature or incapable of complex thought. (laughs) That is just those are terrible assumptions that are just wrong. They're, they're assumptions commonly held by adults about children, and as I said, they're frequently wrong. <laughs> um, I can affirm listening to young people on the daily that kids are very worldly and uh, have uh, have an ability um, to think very deeply about complex issues in the world. Um, as texts like El Defo and, and Zenobia, another one of my favorite texts, remind us, young people are, are frequently open to the world, more open to the world around them, not to mention more politically aware. Uh, and their youth, I think, is their particular strength, their superpower, um, because they are often not caught up in like really rigid assumptions, <laughs> about, you know, what the world is and and what possibilities the world has for them. And because they're so open to this, they they aren't, or they're able to change minds and change their own minds. And, and that's exciting to me to watch that moment in young people when you ask a question or have a guided discussion and, and see a light come on where they're like, oh my gosh, I can think about that differently. And you know, maybe, maybe I, it was wrong, or maybe I can transform um, the way I think. Uh, and I also feel that, funnily, because um, many of these texts feature young figures who are not innocent, but, and, you know, you know, and what I mean by innocent, I mean, who are not uh uh, without experience of the world, without an ability to cope with challenges. Texts like drama, Raina Telgemeyer's gay text, um, are often flagged by adults who call for the books to be banned, right? And I firmly believe that we have to push back at adults like this who insist that children can't cope with challenging subject matter, Um I really feel that that in a way is thought control. If if we don't allow them to choose what to think and what to read, we are 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 really limiting their scope. So, what excited me about the texts that you know I've spent uh, the last few years reading and that I continue to read on the daily is um, uh, how refreshing they are about what topics to bring up and raise with kids and and often how avant-garde they are in their visuals as well which again assumes that read young readers can Read critically and read visual images critically as well. And uh, I have to ask, you mentioned these comics, which like really
0: hit home for you personally and your personal relationship to what you're reading. Um, I'm curious, did your own reading habits as a child influence the direction of the study that you're doing
1: now? Well, it's so funny. They didn't. Uh, I never read comics as a kid. My mom and dad were French uh, critics my dad is a French professor at Carleton University. They loved Asterix and Tintin, and uh, they provided them for me. And I was like, not interested at all, not my, not my style. And then it was when I was doing my PhD, and uh, I was a teaching assistant for the English department. And the chair at the time asked me, would you consider teaching the new comics course which was taught by my uh colleague and friend Jonathan Warren and I was like sure why not he and he taught this sensational class full year class that looks looked at comics from um the yellow kid you know superhero comics little orphan Annie American comics all the way up to 9-11 we looked at 9-11 comics as well and strangely, I just fell into a a completely new field. (laughs) And it makes me laugh sometimes when I think about how far I've come from my two specialties in Victorian and modernist literatures. (laughs) So, um, so no, I, I didn't read comics. But I will say that even as a young reader, I was really interested in memoirs and historical narratives about narratives about lived experiences, um, and I was then, and I guess I still am, a voracious reader who loves to immerse myself in, in in stories that someone is is sharing with me, and and the more sort of authentic or honest they are, the the better. Um, I guess I gravitate more to these types of stories than I do to science fiction and fantasy, though I do love Lord of the Rings and, and other fantastical texts. Um, but I really think that these crisis comics, um, like the ones that I write about, are so key to getting us moving away from thinking and assuming that uh, you know children and child readers are naive. All
0: right that that definitely makes sense it's very interesting how you found your way here i'm <laughs> glad to have you um great so uh, coming from your your background, and you you've worked through a diverse range of media and visual culture. And in your book, you use a couple of different terms aside from comics, talking about like graphic text or visual text. You're also informed by children's literature in general. So, how wide of a net did you want to cast for your sources in this framework? Uh, what type of corpus were you looking for?
1: Right. Well, um, I was looking at primarily text based comics and graphic narratives. I wasn't looking at serials or series per se, though, um, you know, there were I, I mentioned a few indigenous series. Um, but uh, the terms graphic texts and visual texts, I often use as uh, in a way syno- synonyms or synonymously with comics and graphic novels. Um, though I like the term narratives and I prefer it to novel because I think it's a little bit more useful for the types of narratives that I'm looking at. Novels suggests fictionalization and obviously there's an element of interpretation when a visual creator reframes, uh, you know, a, a, a literary or um, a narrative, a written narrative, but the novelization part I wanted to really push back on because a lot of these are not novels, per se, in the traditional sort of literary sense of the term. So um, I, I I really read widely, as I said, I had a huge list of texts, and I, I was noting trends and preoccupations and um, migrant comics, um, comics about child soldiers, Indigenous comics, queer comics, and comics in graphic medicine were just some of the trends that I started to notice and that I chose to examine. Uh, One of my external readers for the manuscript was kind enough to say, we want more. We want a chapter on children in the environment. We want a chapter on blah, blah, blah. And I was like, listen, (laughs) I'd love to write that but I'm already 25,000 words over my limit. So (laughs) maybe that's for a follow-up book. Um, But yeah, I read widely, but these are the ones I chose to sort of narrow in on. Um, And they're ones that uh, I still see cropping up uh, on lists. And uh, so there's still very much at the forefront of the the genre. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it? That's where Bank of
0: America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer
1: to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Sounds like a book proposal in the works. <laughs> so we've heard how you made your way to these materials. and. Um, after seeing these trends and, and going through the resources that you have, how do you or how would you describe that kids are accessing reading materials these days? And is that any different from how they were accessing in the past?
1: Well, it's it's exciting for me to to watch my own kids access uh, materials, because I feel like there is so much more out there than there was when I was a young person growing up in the 80s. I read voraciously in the 80s um, and in the 90s. (laughs) Um, But now kids uh, have access and are encouraged to read online at school. Oftentimes they do have like one hour a week in the library, but every day they have access to quite a large resource of books online through their various tablets at school Um, And I mean, if you walk into the children's departments in uh, bookstores, the children's departments in libraries, oftentimes, those are, well, certainly libraries, like public libraries, those departments are almost as big as the adults, adults only departments. And so there is so much more, there's so much more out there, obviously, that kids can access um, and so much more range. The texts are so much more vibrant and refreshing, right? With a range of formats, a range of topics, range of perspectives. And and so let's be serious. So many more publishing houses are targeting this uh, youth demographic. So what this signals to me and what, what I get excited about is that there are so many opportunities for young readers to see themselves, to see their own nuanced perspectives showcased in book form. And, you know, as I say in the book, and as I firmly believe, reading can empower, right? And that time spent reading is just so key um, to, to their experiences. And, you know, if only young readers and libraries didn't have to fight against, you know, the assumptions about what young people could cope with and, and the book bans that are taking place around the world, um, I feel that, uh, you know, that would sort of re or that would push back against uh those assumptions of of those adultist assumptions about topics that young people can cope with
0: adultist is a great word (laughs) a great term to use there And you have a a well-informed literary and cultural history framework that you're using here, but I was really interested how you chose to use the principles of the United Nations uh, Convention on the Rights of Children uh, in your methodology. Could you explain how you incorporated that and why you chose that, why it's important?
1: Well, um, I am a part of the CCY program at York, which is the Children, Childhood and Youth Program at York. And uh, one of the riches of this program is that it's rooted in um, social justice concepts. When we look at the lived experiences of young people, and the way that we, uh, one of the ways that we define what a who who and what a young person is, is based on this principle. Um, so the UN CRC document is really key to my project because it's a legal treaty. uh, And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a sec. But it's a legal treaty that affirms and values the agency of young people under the age of 18. So for people who might not know this, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is, is a treaty, as I said, adopted around the world in 1989 that defines the rights of any child anywhere, regardless of race, creed, or culture. Um, It's a huge and fascinating treaty to read. It's made up of 54 legally binding articles, and all of them are designed to protect and promote children's rights in the fields of health, education, nationality, and family. So um, one of the important things that this treaty considers is young people as active beings, independent persons with rights, uh, interests, and and most importantly, agency. And what I mean by that agency um, is really an, a, an ability to act and to make choices and decisions over matters that relate to them, albeit in a relatively limited way because they're still children right, given the social and political structures that still govern their everyday lives. So this UNCRC document is really important, but I also wanna flag that it's also very limited as so many political statutes are. Um, Not surprisingly, if it's a legally binding treaty that applies to the whole world, it's a very, um, it offers a universalizing vision um, in the assumptions that it makes and um, that, you know, children are the same the world over. Um, and so because of this universalizing vision, it has not surprisingly some pretty serious blind spots. Um, for instance, there are uh, optional protocols that, you know, countries that are invited to sign this treaty can opt out of and, and, Two of them are very disturbing. One of them is about child soldiery, and one of them is about sex trafficking, right? So you can have countries sign this treaty, but opt out of this, which in and of that, in and of itself is disturbing, right? Um, And often there is quite a disturbing gap between principle and practice. So they sign the treaty, but they don't implement its ideas and ideals. So... The comics, getting back to comics, what the comics that I selected for use in this book share with the UNCRC is, you know, this this assumption about children as agentic and responsive to the often challenging worlds that they move through. The representations of, you know, human rights violations that the young people endure in so many of the texts that I look at, right? The the migrant text, child soldier text, you know, the texts that look at genocide, um, again, really make very evident the gap between principle and practice that countries like the U.S. and even Canada, even Canada, still make evident. It's uh, it's a fascinating read. Um, I always get my first-year students to read it from cover to cover, uh, and we have investigations of it together to think through sort of assumptions that it's based on, visions of childhood that it, you know, directly or indirectly endorses, and, and the gaps that it allows, um, the gaps in which children do can still become vulnerable that the the treaty still allows. So, yeah, it was a useful document for me to first of all, clarify the parameters of what a child is. Um, and uh, and also to talk through how to even um, prevent myself as much as I can from assuming that childhood is the same the world over right, and, and comparing, you know, the experiences of someone living in Toronto, say, with someone um, living in Mogadishu, right, like to, to, to draw parallels between the two is very difficult. Um, but, you know, and that's where we can come back to the treaty and have some language to use, and then examine how differently, Um, those representations figure in relation to that treaty. Well, it's an interesting
0: choice for a touchstone, but it makes sense uh, why you chose it there. Um, And you're looking at visual representations of, as you mentioned, a wide range of young people, including child soldiers, migrants and indigenous peoples, uh, queer youth, young people living with all sorts of impairments uh, or going through medical events. And what did you find are the challenges of representing, but also the challenges of analyzing representations of these characters?
1: Well, absolutely. I, I was very mindful of this, especially since I began the project by looking at Indigenous comics. Um, first of all, I should say that, um, uh, you know, I'm in most of the chapters, if not all of the chapters, I'm looking at at, at risk young people and their lived experiences. And and so it was really important for me to not use them as tokens or think of them as tokenized representations or token figures for for representation. Um, But as as I was saying, because I began by looking at indigenous stories, it was really important for me to clarify my own positionality uh, in my analysis to to really um, be upfront that my analysis is shaped by my own lived experience as a white cisgender lesbian mother of two kids who is part of the settler culture here in Canada, right? So obviously um, there are limitations to my perspective as well. Um, Also, I specifically didn't want to focus on and value texts that situated young people as victims or victimized figures, figures for whom we should only pity or feel sorry for. Um, all of the texts that I, I look at really position the youngsters as agentic, as active, um, as activist voices uh, for themselves and for those communities around them. So. Um, I'm very mindful of the position of privilege I speak from. Um, um, but uh, I also offer up, you know texts in relation to one another uh, to think through some of the analyses that they that they themselves offer and uh, you know that I can look at within a wider context of this genre of literature and of sort of larger social justice focuses. thinking about like uh,
0: these larger social justice focuses, uh, there's a certain uh, or I would like to point to the certain uh, temporal limits and like materiality of this like formally published comics and ask you about um, when we have these formally published comics and graphic novels that are visualizing, as you say, social and political predicaments narrated from the perspectives of these at-risk subjects, uh, how does this contrast with and or support or otherwise interact with comics of actual young people who are writing comics from situations in real time who might not have access to published like official publishing or years to develop a, a full graphic novel? And um, the example that comes to mind is Ali Durrani's uh, Eat and Fish comics, which were done in real time uh, while well, uh, uh, at Christmas Island and a refugee camp at Manos Island.
1: Yeah, and thank you for bringing that up. Uh, that's an amazing parallel. And um, for, just for the purposes of this book, I selected text based, text-based comics and graphic novels with probably the exception of some of the COVID comics that I brought up in the conclusion of the book. Um, Ali Durani's beautiful comics about his detention um, take a very similar perspective to some of the micro comics and comics about mental health that my uh, second last chapter looks at, just in web form. Um, and so... Web-based comics are so crucial in reaching an even wider network of readers and audiences, thanks to the reach of the internet and they don't have to be caught up in the lengthy processes of publication. And I'm very much hoping to expand in that direction in my future work on migrants and detainees by looking more at web-based comics. Certainly when um, I taught a graduate course on crisis comics a few years ago, and I spent a couple of classes looking at web-based migrant comics because you know there's they are literally on the front line and capturing that raw experience that um, isn't necessarily uh, as raw, you know, after a year in publication, you know, during the publication period. So, um, yes, that's that's such a a valuable source of material that is waiting to be mined, (laughs) waiting to be explored further. I know that I have a graduate student who's working on um, web based comics about migrants. uh, uh, And uh, Ali Durani is one of those. creators that uh, will be very useful to her work and, and to mine with going forward. And just to piggyback
0: on the last question, so how does the actual speed of popularization and publication limit comics by young people and for young people in the sense of they might age out of that demographic just in the process of waiting to get the opportunity to publish?
1: Yeah. Well, I think those per those the the parameters of what constitutes each level of reader are so permeable now. So I mean, if I can just spin off and talk about um, you know, adult readers who still read Harry Potter or, you know, readers that are reading outside of their reading level. Um, I think that even though, you know, um uh, book that they that youth readers might be older than you know texts that are written for what used to be their demographic um that there is still an opportunity for them to come back to that text or for those texts to reach new readers and large and potentially larger groups of readers um because of a, of an awareness of of that issue so what i what what strikes me about that is that it will keep the genre really vibrant and thriving and constantly adapting to change, you know, even rereading my chapter on COVID comics. I mean, I wrote that in the first two years of the pandemic and, you know, we're in a vastly different area in relation to the pandemic um, than we were. And it's, it's just the, the, Times are changing so much, and reading material um, is is transforming to the needs of of, of readers, young in this case, that uh, it, it it's it's okay. This is just providing a kind of material and and a range of approach that will um, inevitably meet a new type of reader, if not invite those older readers back.
0: Can I ask you, uh, how would you recommend that potential readers approach crisis comics with young protagonists? Because it it might be quite difficult. Like, What should a reader keep in mind?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because, and I've thought about it in relation to my own kids. um, And what I would recommend is, following on the cues of the reader themselves, um, because actually readers of all ages know what they're comfortable with and when they might be comfortable with, with it. And so, you know, oftentimes I would leave a book sitting on the couch and one or other of my children would pass through it and pass through the room and say, oh, you're reading such and such. And what's that about? And I would, exp- I'd tell them what it was about and, you know, they'd pick it up or they wouldn't. Or a year later, I'm revisiting it and, you know, it's sitting on the couch and they'd pick it up or they wouldn't. And, and, and these texts, I mean, some of them are a lot more challenging in terms of subject matter than others. For texts like Deo Gracias, uh, for instance, about the Rwandan ge- genocide, I would invite um, a a parent or, you know, a guardian to be available to discuss that deeply disturbing text. Um, It's like, though, you know, leaving Mouse Out for Art Spiegelman's Mouse Out and, you know, readers coming to that. I mean, that text is just a a masterpiece, um, but very difficult as well. And one that uh, it should invite conversation as much as as the text that I discuss.
0: Yeah, I guess that outside of reading conversation is something that gets uh, left off or skipped in some cases.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it's true. I think reading groups are so key. I, I think uh, it's cute. My son is starting uh, to participate in a reading club called Forbend Books books that have been banned from libraries or school curricula, etc. And it excites me to think and to imagine him in a community of readers talking about narratives. Um, And uh, I think we can't underestimate that. And one of the uh, tools that their school uses to foster those communities, they hold these little book clubs in class, and the students vote on the book that they want to read. And so they've got like four different book clubs happening at the same time. Ideally, that, you know, if a student's not interested in three of the narratives, they'll they'll be, you know, open to the fourth. And so they'll be reading something that is of interest to them. The only thing that unites the four books is a focus on social justice. And, and that community of readers is, is such an exciting um, and potentially empowering tool for young readers. I know that you know, individualized reading is also empowering, especially for at-risk people or queer kids as I discussed in my book. Um, but I also think that reading as a community, um, especially when you're talking about you know, geopolitical crises, is um is is very useful as well.
0: Uh, I, I'm ready to go found a book club right now. <laughs> after this, thank you. Uh, excellent, excellent reflections on that. Um, so you teased a couple of possible future book proposals. Uh, so if I can ask you, uh, what are you working on now? What are you excited about?
1: Well, I've got uh, a few ideas. Uh, one of the ideas that I'm really excited about. Um, moving forward is founding a queer comics archive here at York university in the special collections um, portion of our library. That's sort of, a, as, as, as a friend of mine said, it that's a, that's a 30 year project. And I was like, yeah. And I, I'm excited to, to, to begin that. I think York um, is a hub of diversity and uh, it's extremely left leaning and empowering in terms of um, being a safe space for all kinds of students and faculty and and I think uh, York would be a great place to begin such um, an archive. Um, I'm also um still I'm obviously my colleague and I are thinking about a follow-up edition of um, LGbtQ comics criticism but we're also musing about, world literature and and embodiment um and uh yeah obviously i'm still reading voraciously in these graphic memoirs about uh, young people going through challenges and and who knows maybe those um gentle encouragements from my re- my secondary readers to to pursue like environmentalist concerns um might to that crop up in a new book proposal. Excellent. So we've got a lot to look
0: forward to. That sounds great. I fully endorse the archive idea. That sounds awesome. And I want to visit as soon as it's uh, rolling. That sounds great. Um, well, Dr. Allison Halsall, uh, Allison, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, so much food for thought to continue on and all should go out to join the book clubs.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.